The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Scott. Oh, we got a fight here. Superior, a superior returns versus risk. I know. Well, we've had a lot of volatility volatility over yeah. the last couple of weeks. And it's been uh, something that I think it's easy to forget or lose sight of the price we have to pay in order to get superior returns. Mm. And what I meant by that is that, you know, I, the title was superior returns versus risk. And when we talk about risk, we mean how much is your portfolio going to fluctuate? So, and this is, you know, that the safe route that anybody could think about, which is something like a GIC, Guaranteed Investment Certificate, uh, a high interest savings account, or even a bond. And all of these investments have a set rate of return for a specific period of time. And the important part of that is while they provide safety and peace of mind, they're not providing a superior return over inflation and taxation. And in many cases, going that safe conservative route, you end up actually falling back. Mm-hmm. You, you lose ground due to inflation by the time you factor in tax as well. So in order to get a superior return above inflation, after you pay taxes and everything, you have to take on some risk. Mm-hmm. And so when things are volatile, like we've seen, it's easy to forget that, that you've earned a superior return because you were willing to pay the price of volatility. You were willing to accept it. You were willing to not touch your portfolio in those periods of volatility. You let it ride and you stayed disciplined. And so just to sort of punctuate that whole discussion, I went back to look at the historical returns associated with one of our longstanding investments, our IG Dividend Fund. And this is a favorite of mine. It's actually, it's a favorite, should be a favorite of all of ours Mm -hmm. because this fund was created in 1962. Mm. And that's easy because that's the year, year. that's the year I was born. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> Don's right. only 12 months behind us. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> 63 was a really good so, year. So, yeah, uh, 1962 was, uh, so that means it's 58 years old. And so that made the math easy for me. <laughs> as are as are the Rolling Stones and uh, the Beatles, born the same year. Just Seriously. Say, well, yes, there you go. Well, it is a fantastic year. <laughs> so if, if my parents had had the foresight to set aside 10 grand into the IG Dividend Fund in 1962, and right up until... So do we buy a house or do, do we invest? Yeah, literally. <laughs> yeah, that's probably that's about what you could have bought back then, right? Yeah, yeah. about 20000 yeah. I would think. Yeah, 20, probably 000? double. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, that Yeah, I think because the house that they did end up buy, that we ended up living in, which was a cu- bought a couple of years after that, was I think 28000 Yeah, I think so, my parents paid like around 20000 in 65, yeah. somewhere around yeah. there. Yeah. So, uh, so it was amazing to me. So a $10,000 investment into the IG Dividend Fund in 1962, right up until February 29th, and I'm going to punctuate that date, February 29th of this year, because 
that was the day that uh, the stock market had dropped uh, uh, almost a thousand points and had <laughs> was struggling in yeah. terms of its. Uh, Thank God, leap years are only every four years. That's right. So the stock market was gyrating, of course, over the COVID nineteen virus and et cetera, and and to that extent, uh, it had actually lost about four percent year to date mm-hmm. on the IG dividend fund. So. Despite all that, that $10,000 investment was worth $540,802 for an average annual return of Mm 7.1%. Would you consider that a superior return? Sure. Right. So that's net of fees, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That's that's before tax and inflation. But relative to, for example, the GIC over the same time period, which would have been taxed as well, it's going to be a superior return. Mm -hmm. And how much would your parents' house be worth now? Yeah. That one that they bought. Right. Back in 1960. Well, so they put almost three times into it, so it wouldn't have been worth. It w- it, so if I multiplied that, that times three, three yes. it was not worth $1.5 million. So there you go. So, so again, one of the questions than we real often see is all oh, real estate's always outperforming it. Mm-hmm. This is just letting it sit there and not adding a new kitchen, never fixing a roof. No property no taxes. No property taxes. <laughs> it's simply no just sitting there and the performance is significantly better. Yeah. But we get caught up in the recency effect and that is, well, look at what real, real estate's done recently. And it's been a very good return, mm-hmm. but yeah. that's just not the norm over the longer haul. Mm-hmm. So 7.1%, $540,000. But then I started to drill down. That sounds, that sounds easy. Wow, we just put in 10 grand, leave it for 58 years. I've got over half a million dollars and fantastic. Didn't have to do anything. When you drill down to understand what has actually happened, I wanted to know how much volatility was associated with that and how much could it have fluctuated over those 58 years. And... We are able to do that by using uh, hypothetical portfolio illustrations through uh, a Morningstar software that we subscribe to. And it lets us drill down to see how much did it change by quarter. So every quarter throughout those 58 years, every period of three months, how much volatility was there? And then I expanded that to every six months to look at a six-month period. And then again to 12 months. Mm -hmm. And then again to three years and then to five years, and then finally 10-year periods. And so when you added them all up, we had uh, 58 one-year periods, right? And in the 58 one-year periods, 18 years had negative returns, and 40 years had positive returns. So roughly 31%, we'll call it a third for round figures, a third of the time, this thing was negative. Not making money, going backwards in theory. Mm-hmm. Right, but the positives, of course, outweighed the negatives over time to result in that seven point one percent. So, if you looked at a three-month cycle, so let's just say you know people who started their portfolio January first this year, and they're thinking by March thirty-first, this COVID nineteen volatility, how much has it affected my portfolio? Well, the worst case, por- the worst case for my IG dividend fund would have been in two thousand and eight, and we know what happened in two thousand and eight. It was the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. In a one three-month period in 2008, my portfolio would have dropped 16.4%, 16.4% in three months. Now, on the other hand, the best 12-month period, or sorry, best three-month period, which, um, you know, again, nobody complains about positive (laughs) returns, uh, that was actually uh, three months in 1982 when it went up by 22.5% in three months. Mm. And then by the time we stretched out now to six months, uh, in six months, 2009 was 
following the financial crisis, minus 27% over six-month period. And back to 1982 again, plus 38% over a six-month period. Now we go to one-year one year time frames. In one year, 1974 was the worst year. And here we are in the oil embargo crisis. Uh, inflation was starting to uh, rise dramatically. Lost 28% in one year, 12 months. Uh, 1983 was the best 12-month performance when it went up 55% in one year. Now let's stretch out to a three-year period. So now three years, and again, no surprise, but the financial crisis. So from 2006 to 2009, the portfolio dropped 26%. So it's an average of minus 9.8% per year for three years. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, from 1982 to 1985, it rose by 97% or 25% per year for three years in a row. Mm. Now we go to a five-year cycle. And there's still a negative return over five years, and that is from 1969 to 1974. That 74 comes back into play here, where it dropped by 8.9% over five years, or minus 1.9% per year. And the best five-year period was 1982 to 1987, where it grew by 139% over five years, or 19% a year. Mm. And then finally, the final piece, which is a 10-year cycle, and the best, the, the worst 10-year period was 1964 to 1974. So I was only 12 years old, not, not too concerned about it at that point. I didn't need the money yet. <laughs> uh, where it increased by 22%, 22.6%. So the average was 2.1% per year over 10 years. So it was positive growth. And the best 10-year period was from 1982 to 1992, where it grew by 258% or 13.6% per year for mm-hmm. 10 years in a row. Mm. And at the end of the day, it's just to remind us that we can have a lot of volatility in an investment over a period of time, yeah. but it's the price you have to pay. But you will be rewarded dramatically if you are willing to accept that there is volatility in your investment, that quarter by quarter, you can see dramatic swings, mm-hmm. even in something like a dividend fund, which has a lot of blue, what we would call blue chip bank stocks, utilities, very sort of large Canadian corporations can even have that much volatility. Yet, despite all of that, the long-term return of 7.1%, which I think most people would say is a pretty good superior return at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah, I think everybody would sign up for that right now. And, it, and you, you know, take a look at, you're looking at about a third of the companies in there are bank stocks, right. such as you know Toronto Dominion, Royal Bank, Bank of Nova Scotia, you know, very solid companies and they paid good dividends too. So you have that as kind of your mainstay. Um, they also add US in there and they also add bonds. So it's a very diversified fund. And it's kind of interesting with the latest volatility that we have had recently, you think, wow, how much would it be down? Well, it just hit all-time highs like three weeks ago and it was up about 3%. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, coincidentally, now it's down about 3%. Yes. Mm-hmm. And really, that's not that bad. It's just your time frame. We get stuck in the day-by-day, hour-by-hour kind of what's the market doing, mm-hmm. and especially when you're driving home from work or, or what have you, and you say, oh, geez, it was a really bad year. A thousand points. What the heck is a thousand points? Well, it could be, a, that's about 3%. But then it goes up 3%. Well, the longer your lens of view is, you say, okay, well, it's not too bad. It was down 3% year to date. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, well, I can accept that. But it doesn't sell a lot of newspapers. <laughs> okay. No. And the one thing when you think about um, with the advent of online access where people can look at their portfolio statement online mm-hmm. every single day, right. they can drill down to the minutia to understand how every piece is doing to the extent they want to, but they see the volatility happening yeah. every day. Years ago, back in the 60s, 70s, yeah. you didn't have that. You got yeah. a quarterly statement yeah. or maybe a semi-annual statement. Yeah. And then you kind of- even twice a year. That's yeah. right, or twice yeah. a year. In between, you kind of thought, well, it, it doesn't sound like it's going well. And you were often surprised that it was either higher and maybe surprised if it was lower too. But at the end of the day, it wasn't a day-to-day piece of information mm-hmm. that you your emotions would rise and fall as you read your, your portfolio value. And, emotion, and really, at the end of the day, mutual funds were never meant to be measured on a day-by-day no, basis. These, yeah, this is long long term and it's just that we have access to it exactly. and even though we talk about long term it's just the fact it's in our face so now it's just like oh it's kind of aggravating so I actually That's do right. I have clients that will not even look at it. they don't want to be online delete because, the link yeah they don't even <laughs> want to look at it online because they're just going to be tempted to look at it you might as well just watch fruit ripen on the vine <laughs> <laughs> absolutely like, like why it's, you know and and really and then I had a client look and said well that wasn't so bad and as he brought his statement in because he doesn't even like looking at his statements he, he understands his his risk tolerance and he understands that sometimes he just doesn't like the ups and downs he knows that for sure so he says Don every year we're going to have a meeting and I'm going to bring my statements in so that I can tell you can tell me what happened this year because I really don't want to know throughout the year up or down you can get the whole thing so we have a great meeting every year that sounds like a healthy decision yes we are planning your financial future I'm Scott Thompson Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management call now leave a message they'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 we're coming right back you are listening to a paid commercial program unless otherwise identified The guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, leave a message, 905-529-7165, and check out the website at andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Emotion versus money. Yes, and they go hand in hand, as we all know. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting, a quote you know, that I just recently read, a lot of people with high IQs are terrible investors because they've got terrible temperaments. Mm. You need to keep raw, irrational emotion under control. And who wrote that was Charlie Munger, who looks after, with Warren Buffett, the Berkshire Hathaway Fund. Mm-hmm. So he would know something about emotion and money. And he writes a lot of, uh, and both of those have great quotes, but it, uh, quite often it's all about people's temperaments and what they're doing with their money, generally making bad decisions. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of different personalities in terms of uh, money personalities. Um, one very common one is a saver. Mm-hmm. They love saving. In fact, they probably borderline hoarding or just straight out hoarding. They look for discounts. Um, they get discomfort when parting with cash. Well, that same person also doesn't really like the markets dropping much. They start looking at the dollar amount and it really bothers them. So they, they may make some rash decisions such as selling when it's down mm-hmm. because they don't like to see it go down anymore. And even though that would bother them, the thought of it going down more would bother them more. They work so hard to save it, they yes. don't want to see it disappear in it, any way. Exactly. It's, it's just a dollar. It's like a bag of money and it's and they extrapolate it. So if, oh wow, it's already down 3%. What if it goes down 5 mm-hmm. And But they don't talk about percents. They talk about dollars, how much it's down. 
funny enough, when it goes up by dollars, they don't talk about dollars, they talk about percents, <laughs> okay? Mm. Oh, it's only done 5%. Mm. It's different when it goes down 5%. It's now in dollars. Um, spenders. Uh, the spender kind of personalities, they just love spending. They get a euphoric high. It actually s- triggers something in their brain mm-hmm. and it makes them almost giddy. And we all know there's a, there's a whole lot of shopping malls for a reason because yeah. it adds something. Um, they're very generous to others, but to a fault. And their credit cards can build, but uh, quite often they spend more than they make. And this makes them very tough to help save money. Now, again, for this type of person, uh, having a pre-authorized check is by far the way to do it. Just have it come out every month and it's a bill. Mm-hmm. Just like they generally can pay their bills, but they just like spending money. Again, the exact opposite of a saver. Um, the saver may have accumulated a lot of money. <coughs> this one actually likes to spend money. Um, risk taker. And you may not be, um, by the way, one or the other. There may be a bit of you in all these. Mm-hmm. And number three is a risk taker. And this is just a gambler. They love chasing return. They, you know, they just, it's basically like Vegas kind of emotion. And recently we've seen things such the weed stocks. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody had to jump on that weed stock bandwagon and say, I got to get into that. Look at Everybody's going to be smoking weed. No, I, I know it. And, you know, <laughs> whatever the case is. And the stocks were going up like crazy based on demand. Maybe that influenced their decision. Because <laughs> <laughs> it could have possibly. You know, maybe they took on some extra risk though. Yeah. yeah. Extra risk. There you go. Sampling the product. <laughs> so I have to sample my stock. <laughs> but again, that uh, euphoric high of, of gambling and winning does not bode well. Yeah. Because again, it's an emotion. It doesn't bode well with investing. And then you get the avoiders. And I know a lot of people, that's kind of like the old school. People just avoid talking about money. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's a taboo. I'd rather talk about our health issues and this issue and everything else, but we're not going to talk about money. And parents, are, you know, our age parents, quite frankly, that's kind of the age group, yeah. that's 70-ish, because, you know, their parents never talked about money either. Mm-hmm. It's learned behavior. And so they don't want to dis- discuss it, but they, at the same time, they find it very stressful. And so it's, and it's also overwhelming. And these, again, here's a perfect... Uh, example of somebody needs a financial plan. Yeah. In fact, all these type of personalities need a financial plan. But at the end of the day, these are all emotions and they can all be counterproductive in you accumulating better wealth. Yeah. In fact, Dalbar, and we talk about Dalbar quite often on this show, they, they're an independent company that simply measures investors' returns. So Andy was talking about the dividend fund and how the performance has been in that fund if he just held on to it. 7% a year since 1962, great fund. Well, what has the investors done? So the people investing it, yeah, if they were in it for those years, fantastic. But if they're in and out of those, because, oh wow, it's down 18%. Those, those negative, those 18 negative years, they suddenly got a little mm-hmm. scared. Worst thing to do. Yeah. Okay, well, it's down this year, we better get out. And that's where it's kind of interesting. Dalbar does it for the US markets. And they're actually a lot more active than Canadians in just in how often they buy and sell um, their companies. And it turns out that even though the returns, say, on a 20-year basis on the S&P 500, which is a U.S. stock exchange, has been 9%, the investor return has been less than 5 So in those 20 years, had you simply gone into a coma Woke up 20 years later, never touched your portfolio, and nobody had a power of attorney so nobody else could touch your portfolio. You woke up and you got a 9% rate of return. Pretty good. 
but the ones that are sitting there and they get to read the news, get to have a lot more data and get their personalities involved in this. And their fingers. And their fingers in the pot. As Andy's often said, investing is kind of like soap. The more you touch it, the smaller it gets. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what's actually happened. Dalbar's showing that the average return is less than half or approximately half of the actual return of the fund. And it's just because human nature gets yeah. involved. So again, in, in motion and money. So there's a lot of uh, different people I follow. Uh, one is Carl Richards, who we've actually had on the show a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's written a, a whole lot on what they basically call behavior gap. And that behavior gap is just what I mentioned about Dalbar. The investment return is, say, nine. The investor return is like five. So the behavior gap is 4% a year. And that's a ton of money. If you look compound that money over the lifetime of your savings time, which is basically your working life, that makes a massive difference. So then he, he takes that to uh, another level and he has all sorts of little diagrams, which they actually uh, air or sorry, are written in the New York Times all the time, which basically showing, you know, when the market's up, greed and buy, and then the market shows the market going down, fear sell. And then dot, 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 repeat until broke. Yeah. Okay. Mm. And that's just, again, human nature. And then uh, the one that seems very uh, apropos at this time is, it's basically the title is You Decide What to Focus On. And it shows this five-year line, and it's relatively smooth going up. But then you look a five-day line, and it's all over the map. Yeah. And we're experiencing that kind of five-day line now. So emotions really are investors' biggest enemy. And it's really, we're, we're always fighting that fear and greed. It's, right, it's, it's built into our DNA. So don't say we can't have it. We, like as, as, as uh, Charlie Munger said, a lot of smart people don't, aren't necessarily good investors. Mm-hmm. They're making a lot of bad decisions. So because emotion gets in the way. So extrapolation is very, is very uh, it hurts your portfolio a lot. Because if you start extrapolating whether it's going up, such as weed stock, Oh, I better get in. It's $74 a share for this particular stock. Well, that same stock now is $25, mm-hmm. okay? Because you extrapolate and you just want to get in there. You think it's almost like a party going on and you want to be part of that party. And as Warren Buffett said, when the tide goes out, you'll find the naked swimmers. Mm-hmm. And what it means is when you see all this market volatility, all those people that were taking undue risks, it really hurts them. Because let's say they borrowed for investment purposes and they're just got, they, they borrowed as much as they could. Well, they got to pay interest on this. Yeah. And now the market's dropped whatever percent. And now it's like, oh, wow. <clears throat> now what do I do? I'm still making interest payments and the market's down. Um, should I get out or should I stay? And that's even another whole new program. And that's called leveraging. So you really end up the day, we're predisp- we, as humans, we're predisposed to take on a path of least resistance. And so we have a lot of biases. One is called the status quo bias, which simply means we're just going to do what we've always done. Why change it? And this is where you sometimes just need to take a step back and relook at things. So I often look at, let's say you had all your investments and let's say it was a million dollars and you looked at everything you own and all of a sudden it got wiped out and you got an insurance check for a million dollars. What do you buy back? Do you buy back everything you owned before? Do you still buy back that BlackBerry stock you might still own or that Nortel stock you still had or or do you buy something different? And this is where it's a really good thing to do once a year. Take a look at your overall portfolio and say, if I were to go to cash, 
what would I buy back? Okay, and that, and that will avoid the status quo bias. Number two is anchoring. Quite often, as humans, we like to we look at the price we paid for something. So if we let's say for example a uh, a real estate agent said, you know what, your house is worth a half million dollars, and then somebody comes into your neighborhood and they offer you four hundred fifty thousand. Well, you think, wow, I'm that's not right. I'm it's worth five hundred thousand. That guy said so. I'm going to wait for that fictitious person to come along with five hundred thousand, mm -hmm. and that may not even be the case. But we've already anchored our our sights at five hundred thousand. And that's the same thing with what we do with uh, investments. We may have paid, for example, $70 for that marijuana stock, but we say, well, it's going to come back eventually. And we anchored ourselves. So we end up holding on to losers a lot longer because we're anchoring. And again, going back to would you rebuy it now is always a good exercise. Number two is the bandwagon effect. Selling or buying what everybody else is doing. So if everybody else is selling because the market volatility, I should get selling too. They're pretty smart people. Remember, smart people don't necessarily make smart decisions when it comes to investing. We saw that in the 90s when the tech bubble was going. Yeah. And if you literally put .com beside a, a name, the price would go up. Mm -hmm. um, I remember a, a pet food company simply added a .com beside his name and the price of the stock went up like crazy. It, it hadn't changed its company at all, mm. just adding that. And we're seeing that in Bitcoin, marijuana sector last year. Same idea, the bandwagon effect. Um, confirmation bias. This is where we never want to be wrong. We made a decision, we did our research, and we are right. And what happens <laughs> is you start looking for things that will reflect that your views. Mm -hmm. So you'll even go online. Why is it a good idea to do this? Mm -hmm. Because that's what you did. And you'll find all these great reasons. A good thing to do every so often is to find an opposing view and say, why is it a bad thing to buy that stock? And you certainly look down south right now, south of the border, and you'll see the confirmation bias all the time with the president down there. Mm -hmm. He will say something and he will just ignore any opposing view. And it doesn't matter what it is, it just makes him look right. And again, when it comes to investing, that's very dangerous because you may be wrong and it may cost you a lot of money. So that's confirmation bias. Um, excessive optimism. Well, as you know what, in life, I agree, it's great to have this very good attitude. It will get you a lot of long ways. You'll probably do well at work because of a great attitude, but simply having a great attitude and in investments doesn't necessarily do the same thing. Mm. That's a great investment, I'm gonna buy it. No, no, again, this is where financial planners really should be involved in your, in your decision-making because they will, taper down your excessive optimism. And I know I had these conversations a couple of years ago with the marijuana sector, with Bitcoin before that. You know, you know that those are risky. Mm -hmm. Oh no, my friend says, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, he's probably did it himself. So he's looking for confirmation bias. Yeah. So he's trying to find somebody to, yeah. you know, confirm that you're doing the right thing. Excessive mm -hmm. optimism, the best way to, the best defense of that is to simply diversify. Have a good mix of assets. And, and make sure, you, again, speaking with a financial planner, how much should be Canadian investments, how much should be in fixed income, and how much should be, say, real estate, mm -hmm. um, and how much should be in cash. And this will combat the fact that you may be really optimistic on one sector. And I, again, I remember uh, one client of mine, he was very, very um, optimistic about the uh, medical field, mm -hmm. and he wanted to buy biotech investments for his kids' education. Right. So that's what he did, and uh, this is before I met him. 
I looked at his portfolio. It had gone up really well at the time. But boy, it went down like crazy. It went down 90%. Yeah. And had he followed that all the way through his kids' education, they would not have any money for in their yeah. RESPs. Yeah. We changed it into a far more boring approach, which was simply to diversify. And thankfully we did. They end up with a nice pot for their pot of money for their uh, post-secondary education. Mm. Uh, number five is loss aversion. Negative emotions are twice the impact of positive emotions. And it's absolutely incredible. So like we talked about earlier, all of a sudden, if, if the market goes up 10%, we don't have head office mm. having a seminar saying, okay, why is the market up so much? But yeah. boy, if it goes down 10%, if we get all the experts saying, okay, this is what's going on. And it, again, that's simply because of the impact of, of the market going up and down. You know, it's at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's not different this time. I know one person said, you know, it's, 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 it's ice cream. Everyone's just simply a different flavor of ice cream. It's still ice cream. And the market goes up and it goes down. It doesn't soar and it doesn't free fall. Mm -hmm. It's just simply going up and down. And we have these years and that's just the normal thing. But loss aversion is what makes particular Canadians too conservative for their investing. And they got a very conservative portfolio and it ends up, they end up with half the money they should at retirement because they've been too conservative because of the emotion loss aversion. So what you need to do is think in, in terms of 10-year timeframes. So therefore, again, you're not so caught up in the ups and downs. Think in good chunks of cash uh, time rather, long-term timeframe of 10 years, and therefore the ups and downs of a one month really don't make a big difference. Uh, number six is overconfidence. Did you know that 50% of the people are better than average? Well, how is it that drivers feel that 80% of drivers feel that they're better than average? Hmm. It's impossible, hmm. okay? And only 50% can be better than average. And so when it comes to overconfidence, that same thing happens with investing. People get very overconfident. And this is where it's great, again, to have an advisor making sure you do the proper things. And finally, um, present bias. You're looking at, you're, you're, you're putting more weight on what's going on now than what's happening down the road. So if you have recently uh, a downturn in the market or an upturn in the market, you feel really good about it. Mm -hmm. If it's up or really bad if it's down, that's just the present bias. And again, taking a look at more the long-term view has always been the case, particularly when you're talking about retirement planning. Because retirement planning isn't simply to get to the day of retirement. It's also for the rest of your life after that. So invest for the long-term. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Check out the website at andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows or ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Or call and leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. All right, going to talk about working in retirement. Yet, do we or don't we? What do we yeah, do? Yeah, you know, th th this is often a case where, in fact, even this past uh, week, I was socializing with some people and they were talking about, well, I might get a package from my workplace yeah. and, you know, it'll be perfect because then I can go and I'll, I'll work, do something else. 
And, uh, or we, you know, Don and I are sitting down with somebody and talking about their retirement plan. And they said, well, I just have to get out of my job and I'm going to continue to work. So Mm -hmm. let's build that into my plan. And, you know, as I was reflecting on some research that I just came across this week, I thought, boy, how often when I look back that when we put that into somebody's plan, does it actually happen Mm -hmm. where they actually do get a job? And I thought of, I thought of two cases where it actually did happen and there was probably dozens where it didn't. Mm -hmm. So the majority and that's going to lead you to sort of, I'm giving you the answer ahead of time yeah, here. But yeah. at the end of the day, and in both cases, both people that are working after retirement are driving a bus. Really <laughs> one's doing it for the school, for the school board. Mm-hmm. And another one's doing it for partially for school, but usually for um, field trips and things events, like that yeah. or special events. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and the one is still doing it and they're up about 65. The other one's 71 and still doing it mm-hmm. part time. So anyway, there was a survey I came across and this was for a group of 1800 people were surveyed age 50 plus and they had to have at least $100,000 invested or more. And half of them were working and half of them were retired or semi-retired. Mm-hmm. So half working, half retired, 50 plus, $100,000 of investments or more. And they were asked three questions. And the first question was, uh, do you know your retirement date in advance? Question one. Mm. So the, the pre-retirees, 55% said they expected to know their retirement at least one year in advance. Mm-hmm. When they surveyed the actual retirees, only 39% knew what, the, knew what the retirement date was going to be one year in advance, and 16% had no warning at all. Mm-hmm. So as much as we think we know this is the day we're going to retire, it's probably only about a third of us actually end up even coming close to that being really? the date. Mm-hmm. Uh, question two was do you expect to be a snowbird? And so the pre-retirees, 34%, over a third of them, visualized that they were going to be a snowbird lifestyle, spending winters in the south somewhere where it's warm. The actual retirees, what percentage do you think are snowbirds? Five. Uh, 20? 18%. Oh, wow. So 34% pre-retirees thought they'd be snowbird. Only 18% of retirees actually are snowbirds, actually mm. do it. And the third one was the, the one we were talking about is the plan to work in retirement. So again, coming back to, I'm trying to figure out my retirement plan. You wouldn't want to get work. that one wrong. <laughs> yes. <laughs> really? Because like, you know, you're thinking, hey, I'm going to work, so absolutely. I don't need as much. And then you decide you don't want to work and you don't have enough cash. Yeah. So, and I've learned my lesson on this as far as planning for retirement mm. for uh, clients. But the, uh, so in terms of planning to work in retirement, 50% of pre-retirees assumed that they would, mostly because they wanted to stay active or and half of them wanted to just because they needed income, mm-hmm. uh, 50% assumed that they were going to be working past age 65 in retirement. Only 11%, mm-hmm. only 11% actually did work uh, full or part-time beyond age 65. Mm-hmm. So um, the lesson in this is that it's very dangerous from a financial planning perspective to assume that someone's going to work after age 65. Yeah. And uh, in, in other words, let's just treat it as a bonus. Mm-hmm. It's uh, yeah. it's almost like an inheritance. You know, you think you might get it, but uh, let's not rely on this mm-hmm. because we have to stress test your plan without it. So that comes back to something that we talk about, which are our assumptions or the guidelines that we have in terms of rates of returns when we make someone's retirement plan, putting it all together. And uh, we actually have our body, our, the Financial Planning Canada Standards Council, which sets 
projection assumption guidelines for the industry every year, mm. and they get updated. And so I just thought I'd run through quickly. Super exciting stuff. I thought I'd run through just quickly the new regulations that help us in terms of uh, our planning process. But one of the things that regulations did a few years ago was they they required institutions, financial institutions, to to do return disclosures. How much? What's the rate of return on your portfolio been? Right. And that started from January first, two thousand and nine, and so now we're into a, a one year, three year, five year, ten year, or since inception rate of return. So you can actually see how my portfolio is doing, and you can compare that, and we can show you compared to the plan assumptions that we have for you. Mm. <clears throat> so. With a plan, I mean, the, the, the main benefit of a plan is having clarity and confidence over what you're doing. And when you can see that the assumptions made in your plan going forward are mirroring what you're getting in your actual returns over the long term, it creates a lot more confidence yeah. and a lot more peace of mind in terms of retirement. So the Financial Planning Standards, Canada Standards Council, as of April 30th, 2019 guidelines, use inflation at 2.1%. Wage increases can be inflation plus 1%. So the assumption would be 3.1% for increases in wages. And then we get into an investment guideline, short-term investments, 3%, which I thought was kind of high, but uh, we'll we'll skip on the next one. Fixed income investments, 3.9, Canadian stock, 6.1, global stock, 6.4, and emerging market stocks, 7.2. Life expectancy, which we kind of, how long are you going to live? Because that's an important equation in all of this process, based on on gender, smoker status, your residence, which province you live in, evidence of good health, are you taking care of yourself, your wealth, and if you're already retired or not. And then when we think about the probability of survival, uh, the standard there is a 25% uh, survival rate, uh, which if you're age 60 today, that would take you out to age 94 as a male, age age 96 as a female. And that's accelerated because that used to be around 90 Mm. years ago when we used to do this. And um, when you drill down to looking at a portfolio for somebody, a conservative portfolio before advisory fees would be 4.41%, a balanced portfolio, 4.9%, and an aggressive portfolio, 5.75%. And we're allowed discretion to increase or decrease that by half a percent based on someone's behavior. For example, if you're kind of a buy high, sell low individual, you like to uh, tweak your portfolio a lot, we might decrease it. Um, Whereas on the other hand, if you're an engaged client who rebalances their portfolio, meets with us regularly, we might increase that by half a percent as well. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message at 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. And don't forget their website at andyanddon.com. Talking about the value of having a financial planner. Yes. And, you know, I guess it's a little self-serving because we are financial planners here. But, you know, it's interesting. I couldn't imagine trying to plan out a person's retirement without having somebody doing this for you. Mm-hmm. Um, doing this for a living, there's so many things we talk about and think about in creating a financial plan for somebody. If you are simply not in this field, I don't know how you do it, to be mm-hmm. honest. 
Uh, you might get lucky, and yeah. you might, and, and if you have a defined uh, benefit plan, um, that helps a long ways because you know you got a certain income for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. and it may be indexed, which is great. But you know, at the end of the day, there's it play, we play a very important role at any stage of your investment journey, whether it's just starting out when you're younger, mm-hmm. putting out a little bit of money. It turns out that a lot of people feel you need a, a lot of uh, money to invest. And it turns out a majority of Canadian investors had investable assets of under 25000 at the beginning of their advisory relationship. Mm-hmm. I know, you know both Annie and I have grown a lot of millionaires over the years. Mm-hmm. We've both been in the business, um, come up to 35 years, I think Annie's mm-hmm. 36 years now. And some of our clients started off in that same boat, yeah. very small. And they simply added money. They, uh, you know, got better jobs, and they created. And here they are at retirement. They can't believe they're at a million dollars. And they, you know, they certainly give us kudos. And it's a teamwork because mm-hmm. we can't do it without them. And they, they, we, we, you know, have little talks and what we should do. And and our good clients say, okay, that makes sense. And they follow along. And thirty years later, wow, they've got this kind of lump sum of money. So yes, it's uh, and trying to find a wide variety of financial solutions for your investment portfolio while trying to accommodate your unique goals and your risk tolerance. Now, when I look at that, I say, okay, everybody has unique goals, um, but to the main say, at the end of the day, they all cost money. Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't know a goal that doesn't cost money. Yeah. And then they, I look at risk tolerance, and then we have to, as financial advisors, educate clients to make sure they understand what risk tolerance means. I know Andy and I have gone through a lot today about talking about risks and the ups and downs of the markets. Well, people, if they're too conservative, they don't understand the risk of being too safe. Yeah. And if, if we show them that and what volatility means and looking at chunks of 10 years, that makes a lot difference than simply taking a little test at, a, at an institution, I'm a moderate or I'm a conservative or what have you, and they simply invest that way. Doesn't even come close to dealing with a financial planner. So, and, the, and secondly, having a detailed step-by-step financial plan that's tailored and really evolves as you go through the life stages. Now, just because you're at 30, you're a certain mindset. Obviously, when you're 50, you may be in a different mindset and you have to invest differently or save more, whatever the case is. But we go through all this on a yearly basis to make sure people are on this journey together. So education and the context to understand and gain confidence in your financial plan makes a massive difference. And so I look at uh, our clients and they've gone through a lot of studies, but it's interesting, investors who work with an advisor have been shown to have almost four times the assets of investors that don't work in a, with an advisor over a 15-year period of time, mm. four times. Now, it's not that the returns are f- four times higher. It's simply that they are putting more money away, right. um, doing the right thing, so they're, they end up with more money because of that. So even if the returns are identical of doing it yourself, why wouldn't you want to have a competent financial advisor? And when I say competent, I also look at what designations do they have? Do they have their CFP, Certified Financial Planner? I personally wouldn't deal with anybody but one that has that mm-hmm. designation or at least has somebody working in the background with that because it, it's extremely important to have the education behind it. And it's interesting, um, 82% of investors say that the advisor helped them save. So without the advisor, they definitely wouldn't have saved as much. So that alone is worth something. Because quite often, it's not that, uh, you know, we have a, we definitely have a debt issue in Canada, but we have a huge saving issue. Yeah. Because if we had saved more, they may have not got into as much debt. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
So you need to have confidence in your plan and sticking to your financial plan is challenging. We're going through that right now, especially through volatile markets. Okay, and so having that planner, that financial planner give you advice to stay through those markets makes a massive difference. So that way you get closer to the investment return rather than the investor return as we talked about earlier. So, you know, and so what we looked at is 70% of investors believe they remain in financial markets despite volatility because of their advisor. Hmm. So without having people like Andy and I, they would have bailed. They would have said, that's yeah. it. I can't take it any longer. So at the end of the day, they, they're pulling their money out at the wrong time. And it really doesn't matter, you know, what the costs are. The costs of doing making bad decisions, and I'll take that back. It does matter what you're paying, no question. Mm -hmm. It does affect mm -hmm. your returns. But the biggest cost is doing the wrong decisions mm -hmm. because that, that works out according to the Dalbar studies, 4% a year difference. So you're losing half your return based on bad decisions. Mm -hmm. So therefore, having that person make sure you get through these makes a big difference. So working with advisors encourages you to save. Um, it's interesting. They actually showed that um, the savings rate for somebody that's working with an advisor is 10.8%. But the saving rate of somebody not working with an advisor is 6.7%. So somebody working with an advisor is saving 61% more money. Mm -hmm. Well, tell me that's not going to make a massive difference by the time you hit yeah. your retirement ages. And then if you're going to save, you better invest it. And it's interesting, the people that are working with advisors, they have 81% of their money invested in non-cash investments. But ones that are sitting there not working with an advisor, they're always on the sidelines wondering, should I put it in? Should I, you know, what should I do now? And it, and it turns out they have 53% of their money in non-cash investments. So basically they got half their money in cash and half invested, whereas somebody working with an advisor has 80% invested and 20% in cash. So all these things add up. It doesn't even go through all the different things as, as retirement planning, tax planning, cash flow management, and estate planning, what we've gone through on many of our shows. That's just all part of what a financial planner does. But at the end of the day, when the rubber meets the road, people have far higher net worth because they're dealing with a financial advisor. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message at 905-529-7165. They'll return your call. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great week. Thanks, Thanks Scott. Scott. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.